I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Our thanks to this week's sponsor, Bonningale Nurseries at Wolverhampton. There is no better group of plants for flower power than of the shrubby potentilla. Hello and welcome to This Week in the Garden. I'm Peter Seabrook, here to exchange some news, views, a bit of seasonal advice and uh, hopefully answer a few gardening quandaries along the way. As uh, so often the weather dictates activities and that east wind was a killer for several days, although we did miss the uh, damaging gales last weekend that uh, many down the east coast had to suffer. Indeed, last Saturday, it was dry enough to cut the lawns. Not as dry as I would like, but uh, at least it's now cut. And with uh, low temperatures, should be okay for a good few weeks now. On Monday, it was so cold, water and the soil remained frozen all day. And the thermometer dropped to minus five in the polytunnel. That saw off the tomato foliage, although there are still some trusses of green fruit I can cut off and try up, and they'll ripen in the kitchen. Should uh, certainly see me through to the new year with a bit of luck. At the bed of roses planted a year or so ago in the front was getting a bit tall, so all but the budded stems were cut back by a third, the surface weeded, fallen leaves gathered before I applied a mulch of uh, oak leaf mould among the emerging uh, cyclamen coom foliage. Oh, and there were the first signs of pink flower buds just popping up. John and I managed to clear the front drive from all the pots, trays and uh, other debris that uh, had accumulated a fair bit of it, I have to say, from uh, the September Chelsea Flower Show. You know, it's surprising how much uh, has to be cleared up and how long it uh, takes to do. But on Sunday I had a day off and uh, journeyed to Watton on Stone near Stevenage where I was uh, invited to an excellent Sunday lunch. All uh, allotment-grown produce. My hosts have a a new house with the uh, sitting room on the first floor Lots of uh, large glass windows looking out across the village sports field to the church on a beautiful place uh, to sit on a bright, sunny, late November day. On return home, I picked uh, a lovely handful of raspberries from the polytunnel. Surely this must be the last lot for 2021. What's the news this week? Well, the large chain of British garden centres are donating 50 pence from every fresh-cut Christmas tree sold towards making Christmas a little better for all youngsters at 52 children's hospices. 
boy, that should bring a few more smiles. Our staff and customers had some fun recently at Perrywood Sudbury Garden Centre when the Aladdin pantomime characters from the local theatre made an appearance. Apparently uh, Perrywood staff tested the magic carpet and uh, Aladdin and Humphrey the camel uh, <laughs> entertained everybody to some extent. I hear that the BBC has signed a new three-year contract with the Royal Horticultural Society for exclusive coverage of their shows. Uh, Chelsea Show will be a standalone series of programmes as usual, while Hampton Court, Tatton and uh, Malvern Spring Festival will be broadcast uh, via the BBC Two Gardener's World programme. Questions? Well, the burning question over recent weeks has been uh, winter treatment for begonias and dahlias. Chris Bradley tells me that uh, we've had over 100,000 hits for this subject on the sungardening.co.uk gardening how-to videos. Now frost has uh, burnt the foliage and stems back. They should uh, fall off begonia tubers, so... Uh, once this happens, carefully uh, remove any compost or soil without damaging the skin if you can. Let them dry and then store them in paper bags in a frost-free place. Dahlias should similarly be cut back to uh, six inches, lifted, soil or compost carefully removed and then uh, stacked upside down to dry before again storing uh, either in single layers in trays or in paper bags. Now my interview this week is Barbara Wright. Uh, she's a real expert in micropropagation and has been doing that for years. Uh, when you microprop, it's an alternative to uh, growing from seeds or cuttings where we actually start with a tiny piece of plant cell from the growing tip. A much more technical way of growing and not for the amateur, obviously. But growing new plants in this way allows very rapid multiplication. You know, from one little tip, you can have hundreds and thousands in a very short time. Now, the image of microprop plants is uh, quite futuristic looking. You know, plants in... Uh, glass jars, growing away and multiplying on a clear agar, no soil. If you've got an orchid uh, on the windowsill, there's a very good chance that it started life in this way uh, and also that you paid uh, less for it thanks to uh, the speed uh, and great numbers that can be uh, produced in this way. As well as the obvious financial benefits of growing plants more quickly, we can also... Uh, grow them disease-free. It's a good way to eliminate virus from uh, strawberries, croissants, all those kinds of things. It's a very interesting topic, so I wanted to ask Barbara to tell us uh, just a bit more about it. So, Peter, it's um, very much a sterile technique. We actually propagate it in a laboratory. So conventionally, plants have been micropropagated for 40 years plus. It's growing plants 
in sterile cultures. So, so we use um, honey jars with a, a medium. So you, we, we would actually give the plants they, all the nutrients they'd need to grow in um, rather than them having their roots in the soil or, or compost or whatever. We actually have to give, supply all that to them. But it allows us to perhaps tweak plant growth hormones and that's really the advantage of micropropagation. And you start with a very tiny piece of uh, each plant, don't you? Yes, yeah, very, very tiny piece, yeah, yeah. It used to be uh, easier in the old days when we had better eyesight. <laughs> <laughs> and so why is this necessary? <laughs> okay, so we take we, we have to start with a, a tiny piece um, so that it's, it's as sterile as it can be from the apical bud. Um, but one of the advantages, really, of micropropagation and needing a very small amount of material is that we don't need much. So over the years, we have often been able to multiply up new plants for launching to the public. I mean, you, you mentioned the hop golden tassels. That was one of them, where there's just maybe one or two stock plants initially. And then we can multiply up and produce 5,000, 10,000, however many is required. And they tend to be cleaner, don't they, if they're propagated in this way? Yes, they do. They're cleaner. It gives us a chance to lose the fungi bacteria that tend to sit on the surface of a plant. And also, micropropagation does tend to rejuvenate plants. It gives them more vigour, generally. And when you started out from a university, you were doing roses, I think, micropropagating roses. Was that the start crop? That was very much where we established the business, yes, yeah, yeah. So, it, again, micropropagation allowed us to produce uh, roses that are on their own roots rather than being having to be grafted. But you've made quite a dramatic change. The name of the company now, Bedemos. <laughs> Can you explain that a little to us? Yeah, yeah. So, so, so it has been um, a bit of a transition and a journey. We, uh, we were asked to do moorland plants, so um, things like bilberries and crowberries and cotton grasses, the things that you would find on, on peatlands on our moors, because they were quite hard to do from seed on a big scale. So we started with that, and then from that we developed into actually being asked to propagate sphagnum moss, which is unique to peatlands. From my point of view... Sphagnum moss is sphagnum moss, but I rather gather there are a whole series of species of sphagnum mosses and that you propagate quite a variety of them. It's fascinating. It's like all subjects, Peter. The more you get into something, the more it's fascinating, the more you learn. We routinely have about uh, 20 different species that we propagate. In our lab, we have probably a total of about 40 or 50 different species. Of sphagnum mosses? Of sphagnum moss. 40? Unbelievable, 40 isn't it? 40 or 50? <laughs> Why? Do different sphagnums grow better in certain areas and conditions? Very, very much so. So we have um, species from around the world. So different species are found in different countries. They're quite um, habitat-specific uh, and climatically limited. But in this country, we, we have a huge diversity of species. Some are associated with our upland blanket bogs, so up in the Yorkshire Dales, Cumbria, the Peak District. 
And even up there, there are some that form hummocks and then there are some that are found more in the flushes, the more, well, relatively nutrient-rich areas of bog. And then we have species that are more associated with fens, fenlands. And so the fenland ones, they would be raised bogs? Yes. As, as yeah. we get on the latitude that goes across from sort of Yorkshire to um, Lancashire and then to Ireland, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's it. We have ra raised bogs and then the more true fen type of environment. And so when you open your honey jar, which has, who knows, 50 or 100 or more of these little tiny propagules, then what happens to them and how do you get them out onto a, a hillside for blanket bog or something like that? Yeah, so so obviously we, we have to sort of make a transition from that kind of quite nurtured environment in the lab. We then grow them in our greenhouse. So we now have um, about two hectares of greenhouse here in East Leek, full of sphagnum moss growing away. And we sort of harden that up. But then, yes, then it, it does have to make the transition out into the, the harsh real world of the peatland. And is it on its own or is it in pots or how do you handle it? Uh, OK, so we actually um, <clears throat> handle it um, in small handfuls. They're, they're little small clumps of moss. So there's, there's perhaps about um, 50, 100, 150 strands of moss in a handful, in a clump. Um, and we actually package that up um, so that it's quite easy to handle when you're out on a, a peatland doing some planting for restoration. You can kind of unroll them quite easily. But then they are hand plantable. You just make a little hole with a dibber, put your little clump of sphagnum in and, and heal it in with your boot. And there you go, it's away and growing. And, and presumably... It will then need moisture. Yeah, yeah. I think that that's one thing is that um, at least uh, naturally most peatlands are heavily associated with a lot of rain. Yeah, yes. <laughs> so the moisture, yeah. <laughs> the moisture comes quite naturally. Yeah. And how quickly, if you go out onto a hillside and you need to reintroduce the sphagnum moss growth, how quickly will it spread? What sort of depths might you get in given time? So a, a lot of our, our little clumps get planted in sort of February or March time. And uh, often at the end of a growing season, they can be plate sized, if not dinner plate sized. Um, so they, they grow very quickly and start to spread. There isn't a whole lot of information as yet on how quickly uh, that sphagnum starts to contribute to, to peat formation. But there is a lot of work being done on the carbon benefits. You know, the big move to restoring our peatlands is that the peatlands emit um, a lot of carbon dioxide because our, our blanket bogs are very degraded and damaged over time by industrial pollution or agricultural practices. So, for example, in this country... It is thought that damaged peatlands actually contribute about 10% of the greenhouse gas emissions from the land use sector. So they're a very significant proportion, even though they're a very small area of our country. But some of your species of uh, sphagnum are quite good at growing quite quickly, I understand, and absorbing quite a lot of carbon dioxide. 
that's yeah that that's right i think sphagnum is a very underrated plant in our our fight against climate change um you, you know it's so tiny most people don't see it you just walk over it so in, in comparison to sort of walking through a woodland or a forest which you know ev- everyone sees the trees um but in fact um globally peatlands store twice as much carbon as all the forests in the world which is is quite an amazing statistic um, it is an amazing statistic, yeah. It's just the little forgotten thing in our, our whole uh, climate viewpoint. It's a long time ago since um, I was uh, walking about on raised bog in Ireland, in this particular case, and there I was told off for actually walking on raised bog because once you tread on sphagnum and excuse the air, it could take, uh, they told me, five to ten years before it got back to uh, growing in, in the normal rapid mm. way that it mm. would. I, th- I think that's where we feel that being able to micropropagate the sphagnum is so so important because obviously the um, existing peatlands with sphagnum, it, it is a very sensitive ecological system, as you say, and... Um, so so we do need to keep those intact and, and preserved. So the ability to supply sphagnum produced sustainably, produced by micropropagation, without having to damage any of those peatlands, is actually a really valuable contribution. It means we can go and plant sphagnum all over, wherever it's needed, without damaging those existing bogs. Do you see that you have export opportunities? Then you talk about having all those different species. I noticed that in uh, Lithuania, for example, they're reseeding damaged bog, and there they're talking about five to seven centimetres depth of growth a year once it's established. So uh, will beta moss be sending its micropropagated species around the world? Yeah, yeah, we, we very much hope so. We are currently uh, exporting to Germany. We're very pleased there to be, you know, supporting uh, restoration there. And and again, yes, the, the, the Baltic states are, are probably in need of, of material. We're working with Northern Ireland and, and Southern Ireland Every, everywhere there's there's peatland, there's there's a need for sphagnum. Barbara, it's fascinating to speak to you and to hear that story. And what surprises me is that, you know, I jog through life trying my best to keep in touch with everything. And then people that I know quite well, working away, not so very many counties away, doing work that I had no idea about. You know, why don't we talk to one another more? What? Yeah, well, I, th- I think um, w- one of the really interesting things that, that Neil and I find, Peter, is that our, our business has been very much based in horticulture. Originally, we were producing ornamental plants and, and we find ourselves kind of coming full circle back to that um, because one of, one of the other big uses for sphagnum is actually as a use in growing media um, as, a, as a potential peat replacement. So it's quite interesting to be coming full circle and, and we find ourselves talking to people that we knew years ago as they, they're doing trials with our new product. It's uh, 
It's really quite lovely. So are we going to see sphagnum farming then? I think I have heard a little bit of that being done in China, but I hadn't thought about it in uh, the UK. <laughs> oh, yes, yes, yeah. Yeah, there's um, there's a lot of interest in in that. Um, there's a lot of interest from, from DEFRA looking at polluted culture, wet, wet crops um, as alternatives. Yeah, and sphagnum farming... There will be a big market for it. A lot of people are interested. Horticulture is a a very technical industry. I think a lot of people maybe don't appreciate how technically challenging it is. And uh, to, to get the right growing media is is so key to a lot of horticultural processes, especially plug plant production propagation that that we've always been associated with i say amen to that yeah barbara you know it's lovely to speak to you hope i may call in and actually see greenhouses full of sphagnum in the not too distant future oh yes peter oh yes (laughs) please do (laughs) the tailpiece well i went to a funeral this week for bill hamblin And his daughter Sue told us, one of the happiest people I have known, always smiling, never defeated or upset. When slugs attacked his potatoes and fly destroyed the carrots on his allotment, he shrugged and said, yes, but we had fun doing it, didn't we? Farewell, Bill. It was good to have enjoyed your company and your smiles as did many that packed the church to say their goodbyes. Keep gardening, and I very much hope you have fun doing it. Join you next week. Our thanks to this week's sponsor, Bonningale Nurseries at Wolverhampton. To my producer, Rich Jarman, and to you for listening. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.